0: and turn over in the book of Titus for us this morning. This morning we want to look at the blueprint for church leadership. God doesn't just leave this as an open door for whatever we want to do as a church. He clearly defines and marks out for us uh, what exactly... um, he wants for his church it is his church by the way this is not our church you understand that this is his church this is christ's church he purchased it with his own blood and so we need to be reminded of that that there are you know so many times you know we refer oh you know would you like to come to my church or the church i pastor or this or that and sometimes we forget that you know what this is not our church this is God's church, and this is God's property, this is God's building, and uh, we need to be reminded not to hold on too tightly to it, and uh, pray that this morning God will speak to your hearts. But we want to look at the blueprint for leadership in God's church, biblical leadership, God's order for his church. And I just want to read for us um, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. We're going to cover part of this this morning and part of it next week. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Paul is writing here to his young pastor, Titus, who he left in Crete. And so he starts off in verse 5. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-control, upright, holy, and disciplined. These are the instructions to Paul, from Paul to Timothy. So I want to remind us, last week we looked at basically God's living, godly living in a pagan society. And we talked briefly just about the idea that to be God's people in a pagan society, first of all, we have to be saved by grace. That's the first step. You're not going to be any good to anybody if you're not saved and understand that you are saved by grace. And we talked about that at length. And then secondly, we said to be God's people in a pagan society, we who are saved by grace must engage in good deeds. The Bible says that God has prepared beforehand deeds for us to do as Christians. We don't just get saved and then sit down and do absolutely nothing. That's that's being disobedient. That's being rebellious to the word of God. Because God's word clearly tells us that that's not an option for Christians. If we're saved by God's grace, we have to be engaged in good deeds. Where those good deeds happen, they happen outside the church. They happen within the walls of the church. And then the third thing we looked at is to be God's people in a pagan world, we must submit ourselves to the authority of the local church. We're called to submit ourselves to the authority of the local church. And that is a word that makes the hair stand up on the back of the head of a lot of people. That word authority. But if you've got a problem with that, take it up with God. I'm just telling you what God's word tells us. And so I want to answer the question for us this morning. Who runs the church? Who's responsible to run the church? And some of you may be sitting there going, oh, I've heard this before. You know, it may be a review. Sometimes we need to review basic things so that they're stirred up in our heart afresh. And then there's some of you maybe that are brand new to our church. And you're wondering, yeah, who does? How does this church work? How does it operate? Maybe you don't quite fully understand how the church polity, the church government works here. Well, more than telling you just how it works here, I want to tell you what the Bible says, how it should work. (laughs) I think that's important that we go to the word of God. A lot of people wrongly assume that the pastor of the local church, whoever it may be, runs the church. A lot of times people will call in the, in the office and they'll say, yeah, we'd like to talk to the pastor. I said, well, what do you want to talk to him about? <laughs> you know, they don't know I'm the pastor, but so I kind of <laughs> ask the question, you know, and, and sometimes it has nothing to do with me. Sometimes it has to do with facilities or something. I said, well, that's somebody else. Well, you're the pastor. I said, I know, but I don't really oversee that. I don't do that. If you want to talk about a company that cleans the church, I can give you a guy's name that oversees that. Well, can't you make the decision? I said, no, I don't do that. So people assume that just because you're the pastor of a church, you're in in total control of everything. Many people also wrongly assume that our church government in our churches today should be patterned after the U.S. government. (laughs) And that it operates somehow as a democracy. In other words, the pastor and the elders, they're the elected officers, similar to the, maybe you might the president and the vice president. And at the church business meetings, then the the members come and uh, they can voice their opposition to whatever they don't like or whatever they like, and they vote according to their preference. And some people think that's how you run a church. I mean, that system may work fine in America. Sometimes we wonder, but But at the risk of sounding un-American, beloved, I want you to understand that democracy is not the biblical way to view church government. It's just not. It's not biblical when it comes to church government. As shocking as it may sound for you this morning, (laughs) God is not an American. God is not an American. We forget that. You know, we live here in the, the land of the free, and we, we just automatically think that he's up there holding the big, you know, red, white, and blue flag. That's not true. Not that there's anything wrong with America. I think it's the greatest country in the world. A little biased. I've lived here all my life, but I think most of you would agree with me. Sorry, Dan, you're in the minority this morning. He's from Australia. So. And others, others of you from other countries, that's fine. You know, I'm sure you, you love your country too. And you'd say the same thing. But he didn't set up his church as a democracy. He didn't do it that way. Where the most powerful factions control the purse strings. That's not how it works. We're not free to impose our American ideas about government onto the church. Unless we find those ideas modeled for us in the word of God. Another model that has greatly influenced how the American churches are governed today, and we see that probably right at the top, is American business. The business world. Most Christians, you know, we we work in, in the business world. Or we have at times in our life and we're used to various kinds of management structure and operational procedures and all that kind of stuff and and most businesses have a what they call a chairman of the board at the top and then they, he has a board of directors beneath him and then they have the stockholders as the voting members of the corporation and unfortunately when that gets carried over into the church all of a sudden you view the pastor as the CEO The elder or the deacon board, they're the the board of directors, his little hirelings to do whatever he wants. And then the congregation, well, they represent the stockholders. And when they have their annual meeting, they vote on how business should operate and disapprove and approve certain things, and it just becomes a big mess. And with that model, the answer to the question of who runs the church, well, the pastor runs the church. That's what they would say. He's the CEO, along with the board of directors. The stockholders have a say in things. If they don't like the way the company's being run or the way they wish, well, then they can just vote those guys out of office and they get a new pastor, a new elder board, whatever they might be. So it becomes a real popularity contest. Now, I don't want you to, we don't want to throw the the baby out with the bathwater, okay? There are some similarities between business and government models and the church. There's some similarities there. But the biblical picture of church government is vastly different across the board. One major difference is that the church is not an organization. It's not an organization. It's an organism. It's a living organism. All living organisms are highly organized. Anybody knows that if you've ever taken biology? Biology. So we would be mistaken to throw out some careful organizational structure. But as an organism, the body of Christ is not merely an organization. So strike that from your mind. Webster defines an organization as this. An administrative and functional structure. An administrative and functional structure. If you look it up in Webster's Dictionary and you look under organization, that's what you're going to find. And that's fine. That's what it is. But that's not what the church is. He defines organism as this. Look at this. An individual constituted to carry on the activities of life by means of organs separate in function but mutually dependent. An individual constituted to carry on the activities of life by means of organs separate in function, but mutually dependent. If that doesn't describe the church, I don't know what does. The church is an organism. It's not just an organization of people. We're a living unity. The one body of which Christ Jesus is the head. He says that. And every member, every person that makes up the the local church is a vital part of that body. They're separate in function, but they're mutually dependent upon one another. And on Christ, our head. And so the main idea of, of biblical church government, beloved, is to allow Jesus Christ to truly function as the living head of his body. Because it is his body. It is his church. None of us should be seeking or, or even voicing our own will about various matters in the church. Unless we are very consist, convinced that our will coincides with God's will as revealed in his word. And I don't care if you're the pastor of the church or, or you're greeting at the door or you're, you're helping in the kitchen or you're, you're, you're not doing anything. If you're part of the local church... It's not your place to seek your own will. That's not what we're called to do. And it's not to be set up where one man runs the church. God's way is basically Christ runs his church through a plurality of godly men who shepherd his flock under his headship. That's God's model in Scripture. Christ runs his church through a plurality, several, of godly men who shepherd his flock under his leadership. And when you stop and you look at here the situation behind the text that we just read, here Paul has left Titus, this young pastor in Crete. Crete was a pagan place. It was not a good place to be. And he tells him right there, he said, you know what? you got your work cut out for you. You have to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. That's what Paul indicated was of utmost importance for Titus to do at this point in the ministry there at Crete. And Paul was going to help him. He was going to direct him. There was a bunch of struggling, fledgling churches across this island. And they were struggling against this pagan culture in which they lived. And we spoke about that last week. They were plagued with things like false teachers with selfish motives who were upsetting whole families. Look at verse 10 and 11 of Titus 1. Many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. They must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families, Paul writes to Titus. See, the letter of Titus is aimed at correcting those problems. That's the purpose. And Titus is the point man. Titus is the man who's going to get it done. We don't know a whole lot about Titus, but he must have been an unusually wise and solid, firm young man. Because years before, Paul had taken him along to Jerusalem, almost as a kind of an internship or a test case. He said, come on, Titus, you're coming with me. You're going to be my intern. And he took him to Jerusalem to demonstrate to the apostles that, you know what, Gentile converts did not need to be circumcised to be saved. We read that in Galatians 2, verses 1 to 3. It says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem, in Galatians 2, 1 to 3, with Barnabas, and then he says, Taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. Here's why. In order to make sure that I was not running, or had not run in vain. Last verse there, three, he says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. So he was making a point. He took Titus and he put him right in this awkward role, right at the very beginning. And later, Paul sent Titus over to Corinth. And we know what was going on in Corinth, right? We don't need to go into all the grisly details. I mean, it was just a rowdy bunch of people. They had stuff going all over the place. And Titus did well there with those people. He set things in order. And so now Paul comes to Titus again. And he says, you know what? I'm going to leave you in Crete. And he asked Titus to set in order. That word set in order is kind of interesting. It's a word that means after you've broken a bone... And the doctor, you know, you go in you get the x-ray. Oh, you broke your leg. What do they do next? They got to set it. They got to realign it. They got to make sure that it's going to grow together properly. It's a very painful process sometimes. That's what Paul was telling Titus to do. You have to go there. Something's broke. There's something not right going on here. I want you to set it in order. To get them on a solid footing. For their walk with Christ. Calvin points out in his commentary, this really reveals Paul's humility. It reveals Paul's humility. Because here he was, Paul, the great apostle Paul. I mean, he probably could have went there and fixed it himself. But what did he do? He took Titus, this young pastor who clearly was proven because Paul used him before. But he took him and he said, hey, I'm going to put you here and you're going to fix it. You're going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'll help you, I'll direct you, but you know what? I'm going to let you function in this role. It speaks about Paul's humility, and it speaks about Paul's maturity in Christ. He wasn't trying to hog all the work for himself, so he got all the credit. That's not what Paul was about, and that's not what we should be about in ministry. It's significant that the major part of Paul's prescription for fixing these various problems, the major part of it, the the focus, was install godly leadership in these churches. If you start there, Titus, you'll deal with the problems. That's what he wanted done. Next week, we're going to look at the qualifications of these elders of this godly leadership. But right now, I just want to point out that the church needs godly, mature leaders who can stand for truth and refute error. That's what he says in verse 9. He says you have to be able to stand on the truth and you have to be able to refute error when you see it. And churches will be either strong or weak spiritually depending on the spiritual maturity and the doctrinal soundness of the leaders. I mean, I talked to some pastors and they got people in their church and even in their leadership and they're all over the map theologically. Well, we don't focus on doctrine. It's like, holy mackerel, how do you work with this group of men? I mean, they can't even agree on, on, on simple doctrines. That proves to be, make a, a weak spiritual church. It's all hinged on the leadership. And so today I want to ask us three questions. First of all, what is an elder? What is it? What should elders do? Number two. And number three, how are elders chosen? Very practical questions. Well, let's look at the first question. What is an elder? What is an elder? Here's basically a definition. An elder is a spiritually mature man, knowledgeable in the scriptures, Officially recognized by the local church to work with other spiritually mature elders in exercising oversight and shepherding God's flock. Spiritually mature man, knowledgeable in the scriptures, officially recognized by the local church to work with other spiritually mature elders in exercising oversight and shepherding God's flock. That's what an elder is. Now we're going to unpack that definition as we get through this message but there's a lot of different terms used in the New Testament when it comes to the office of elder. The first one is simply that, elder. This is the word in our text. It's used in many texts. Obviously, they were a clearly defined, officially recognized group of men. Yes, I said men. There's a clear teaching throughout the New Testament and, and, and that is simply this. This office of elder is restricted to men. I didn't write it. God did. But that's, that's what he wrote. I mean, since elders are to teach and to exercise authority over the local church, that's their role, to have women elders would violate Paul's clear directive that women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's right there in black and white. You can't get around this. Some people say, well, you're nitpicking. No, I'm not. If you don't get this right, everything else is wrong. I'm sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at what it says in verse 11 to 15. This is not a male chauvinist attitude. This is just basic biblical doctrine and church polity. Does God use women in ministry? Definitely. Several of our women here at Grace Bible Church are in some kind of ministry. Probably more of the women are involved in ministry than some of the men. Because that's just the way it usually is. They're willing to be used. And so it's very clear throughout Scripture there's no room, absolutely no room for women elders or women pastors if we want to be biblical about it. I mean, trust me, I've listened to some women teach the Word. It blew my mind. Some of them are incredible teachers. Credible teachers, so they get together and they teach a bunch of women. I don't have a problem with that. Even if they, if, at a conference, okay, and you got a mixed thing there and a woman gets up and, and teaches. I don't even have a problem with that, to be honest with you. Because it's not within the church. It's very specific here. It's under the leadership of the church. That's what we're talking about. See, the problem is some Christian men take this, you know, everywhere else. Well, you know, you can't talk, you know, woman, you'd be silent, you know, in my house, you know. That's ridiculous. We don't treat our women that way. We don't treat our wives that way. Here we're talking about leadership. By the way, in the New Testament, the churches are always described by the city in which they operate. The church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome. And there's always multiple elders in those cities. And sometimes due to the size back then, they didn't have a hall they would meet in. Okay, so due to the size of the people that came out, a lot of times they would meet in several locations. And the reason they would meet in several locations is because back then they met in houses. They would meet across the city in different houses. On the Lord's Day. And so they would have one or more elders in charge of each location. But the church in the city was viewed as a unit. It was the church at Ephesus. It wasn't First Baptist Church, Second Baptist Church, Third Baptist Church, Grace Bible Church, wherever city, Grace Bible Church, this, Grace Bible. It wasn't that. That's what we have today, unfortunately. I don't know how to correct that, but that's what we have. The more liberal people would say, well, if you would just lay off your doctrine and just come together with everybody, whether they're liberal or uh, conservative, and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, that would solve the problem. No, it wouldn't. We're called to protect the church. And that includes from erroneous doctrine. And so they would meet in homes, but the church in each city was viewed as a unit. There weren't all the divisions we have today. Well, let's look at this word elder because it was adapted from the commonly used Jewish term for leadership. That's really what it meant. It referred to mature men who, by the virtue of their wisdom and their experience, provided leadership in the various different communities there in Israel. And it's applied to church leaders. Elder emphasizes the character of the man. You have to understand that. It emphasizes the character of the man. He must be spiritually mature as reflected in consistent godly character. And we're going to go over some of those traits next week. He's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But the Bible clearly speaks of the character when it uses the word elder. It's not talking about age. Make that clear. It's not talking about somebody's age. That's why Paul had to write Timothy in in 1 Timothy 4.12. And he told him, hey, you know what? Don't don't let people look down on your youth. He was an elder. He was a pastor. He was involved in ministry. He was a young man. And Paul had to write him and encourage him. Hey, don't let these older guys push you around. You do what God wants you to do. He's probably in his mid-30s, so he wasn't 18. But on the other hand, the Bible doesn't give an age requirement for elders. The term may be somewhat relative to that particular church as well. And what do I mean by that? You know, we we go down in the springtime down to uh, Grace Community Church and we go to the Shepherds Conference. And sometimes, you know, we talk to, uh, have a chance to sit in or talk to some of their elders at their church. I mean, it just blows your mind. I mean, most of them have at least a master's degree, if not a doctorate degree in something, plus another master's degree or a doctorate degree in some theological thing because they have the seminary there and they go through that. I mean, you know, they've written books. I mean, compared to our little church, I mean, we're totally out of their leg. (laughs) Okay. I mean, we never qualify in that church just because of the the scope and the ministry of that church. So it's almost to that particular church, whatever it was. If you go start a brand new church, and you plant a church, and maybe have yourself and somebody else, All right, your, your level of kind of a qualification for elders is going to be lighter than someone at Grace Community Church. Now, you don't compromise on the characteristics we're going to talk about next week the character issues, the the consistent godly character issues, those kind of things. You don't compromise that. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is as far as each church has its own pool to draw from. And so the term is somewhat relative to each church. The man may qualify as an elder in a church composed of relatively new believers, but he may not qualify in in a church that's been around for 100 years. And, you know, most of the the people in that church have, have PhDs. So the New Testament frequently refers to the elders of these various churches. The church in Jerusalem had elders. You can look in Acts chapter 11, 29, uh, 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 chapter 15. I mean, it goes on and on. Paul and Barnabas were quick to appoint elders, Acts fourteen twenty three tells us, in the churches that they founded on their, their missionary journey. When Paul wrote to the believers scattered throughout the region of modern Turkey, he addressed the elders among them as a fellow elder, 1 Peter chapter 1. Even in the Philippian church, they had elders. They were called overseers, but we're going to look at that term next. And they also had deacons. We're not going to get into deacons today, but maybe we'll hit on that next week. So that's the first term that we find in the Bible used as, for leadership in the church, elders. Second one there, in your outline, is overseers. Overseers. Elders and overseers are basically used interchangeably throughout Scripture. They refer to the exact same office. Overseer. Episcopos. We get the word episcopal. That denomination. And it refers to those who are appointed by the emperor to lead captured or newly found city-states. Those, when they would go to war, they would capture people, and they would appoint elders or overseers to kind of rule those people. And it looks at the function of the elder, namely to superintend, watch over, guard the local church. Same, same role, overseer, elder, same thing. Later in church history, the term came to refer to the singular, the, the single bishop or the overseer of a certain city. And he was over all the other pastors. They all of a sudden they set up kind of a hierarchy. You know, you have bishops and you have overseers, you have those kind of things. That's where the, the Roman Catholic, the Episcopal Church, even the Anglican Church practice that system of government. But in the New Testament, there's no difference between an elder and an overseer. The two words are used. For the same group of men. Thirdly, pastors. The the noun pastor, which is very interesting. Basically, it just means what? Shepherd, right? It just means shepherd. You know, it only occurs once in the New Testament as a noun. With reference to church leaders, it only occurs once. And it's coupled with pastor, teacher. That's in Ephesians 4.11. More frequently, you'll find that word shepherd or pastor as a verb. So Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders be on guard in Acts 20 for yourselves and for the whole flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd or pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Those words are just interchangeable. Once again, shepherd, pastor, overseer, elder. Elders are called overseers, but they do the work of shepherding the church. The same Three occur in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, where Peter writes, Therefore I exhort elders among you as your fellow elder. Then he says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. See, they're all, they're all mentioned there. According to the will of God. So the elders are to shepherd the flock of Christ by exercising oversight. They have authority over. Over those allotted to their charge. But they're not to lord it over them. See, this is where where you have to be careful. But rather, they're to lead by example. It it always troubles me when I hear pastors or elders talking about people within their church saying, You know, these people just won't submit. (laughs) It's like, well, you got a problem then, pal. Because if they're not submitting, that means they're not following. And more than likely, that means somehow you're not leading in a spiritual manner. So we have to be careful how we view that, how how we use that. But the elders to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, leading by example. And then the fourth term here quickly is leaders. Leaders, The terms used in Hebrews 13, 17, where the church is commanded, obey your what? Obey your leaders, right? And submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. Let them also do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So when you think of submitting to leaders or leadership within the church, you have to understand it's, it's, it's one that they're keeping watch over your souls. And you know what? They're going to have to give account on that day. How did they lead? Did they do it with false motives? Did they do it for greedy for gain? What did they do? What was their motivation? They're going to have to answer more than someone who's not a leader. That's very clear. That's why it's so, so important that we understand that this is not a game we play every Sunday. This is very serious stuff when it comes to God. What we do as a body when we come together. You know, it's not just, you know, thrown together and we come together and kind of ah, well, whatever happens. No. There's a purpose. There's a direction. There's, there's songs that are sung for a reason. There's times of prayer for a reason. There's times of, of greeting for a reason. You know, it's not, not just thrown in there like, hey, you know, I, I don't want anything to do for five minutes. I'll let them greet each other. That would take up five minutes. No, there's a purpose to it. There's a purpose to everything we do here on a Sunday morning. There's a a purpose for our fellowship afterwards. You know, it's not just to go over there and feed your face. It's it's the fellowship. All right? There's a purpose. Why would we do that? I mean, you know, I could very easily check out after I preach a message and just get in my car and go home. I'd be okay with that, to be honest with you. I'm just that kind of personality. All right? I I would kind of enjoy that, actually. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to interact. We're called to fellowship. See, everything has a purpose, and we have to lead by example. And when we don't, we're going to give account for it one day. Well, second question, what should elders do? Or what do elders do? In one sentence, elders should work together to exercise oversight and shepherd God's flock in a given local church. They should work together to exercise oversight and shepherd God's flock in a given local church. Let's look at that first point. Elders should shepherd God's flock. Elders should shepherd God's flock. When you think of a picture of a shepherd and his flock, that basically gives you the picture of the different functions of church leaders. The shepherd led his flock to rich pasture, all right, where hopefully they could feed. He had to get them something to eat. The elders' role, one of their primary roles is to feed the word of God to God's people. That's what it is. Now, while all elders must know the scriptures well enough to be able to teach, First Timothy 3, 2 says that, okay, that's very clear so that they can exhort and sound doctrine and refute anybody that contradicts Titus nine. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that all elders have some supernatural gift or some gift to teach in a public arena. All elders don't have to get up here behind a pulpit and teach. That's not necessarily one of the requirements. They have to be able to teach. They have to know Scripture... But it doesn't mean they have to be a teacher, or a preacher. Okay, Maybe they're better in groups. Maybe they're better one-on-one. They can teach one-on-one. That's fine. Because we're all gifted in different ways. Over in 1 Timothy, turn over there, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul indicates here that some elders, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, look at what it says. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. What is Paul saying here? Paul is indicating that some elders devote themselves to a life of work in preaching and teaching. They walk away. From everything else, and they say, you know what? I'm gonna. I, I, I sense God's calling me to this. We call it full time ministry. I don't like that term because we're all supposed to be ministering full time, right? The only difference is someone who walks away from their secular job or their way of income to commit to the church and trust the church to provide for their needs. All right, it's a matter of of just feeling God leading you down that road. It says that they should be compensated financially so that they can carry out that work. You say, well, couldn't you just work a full-time job and do the same thing? You know what? Yeah, I probably could. I probably could. I've done it before. That's not the issue. The issue is this. Could I do it as effectively, I would probably say probably, just because I'm the only person here, the, pa- the only pastor here, so I'm kind of multiple hats anyway. But I guess my point is, is simply this, is that the reason that, that God has allowed this, I don't view this as a right. I don't view this as an occupation. I don't view what I do, and I don't do what I do here at this church For a check. Very clear you understand that. What's the motivation? That's that's a bonus. (laughs) That's purely a bonus on top of of getting to do what I do full time and to serve the Lord. I think that you have to understand that. I mean, you can make a lot more money out in the secular world doing a variety of different jobs than you could ever make in ministry. I'm not here playing a violin for you. I'm just stating the fact. All right? God has provided very well for us here through this, this small little church. It's amazing. And yet, you know what? If the elders came to me next week and said, you know what? Sorry, Steve. We don't have the money to pay you anymore. What would be my, oh, sorry. I got to go, go. You know, I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to be full time. See you later. <laughs> I'll find somebody else to pay me. No. And go get a job. That's what I'd do. It, it would be that simple. It wouldn't even, I wouldn't even think about it. Because it, it goes back to the motivation. See, Paul indicates that some elders devote themselves. They, they, they're willing to sacrifice a good salary with benefits and retirement and everything and just come over here and say, you know what, I'm just going to trust God to work this out. Shepherding the flock also involves caring for the flock. Binding up the wounds of the injured. Sometimes even physically. (laughs) Nursing the sick back to health. Helping the young grow in health and maturity. James 5.14 tells us that elders are to pray for the ill. Personally, I really believe that means... Not necessarily physically ill, but spiritually ill. I don't have time to go into it this morning, but that's my view on that. And for all the church we're called to pray for, Acts 6-4. We're called to disciple younger men. We're, we're called to, to take those who are new in their faith and take them alongside and say, hey, let's, let's get you grounded. Let's spend time. Train future leaders. We have to be gentle, in our exhortations and encourage each one almost as a, as a mother would encourage her child. It's not necessarily hard to do those things. It's not, I, w- I would say it's not a burden to do those things. But what troubles you is when you don't do all those things perfectly. Because <laughs> you know one day you're going to give an account it's very serious the role of an elder in the local church he needs to shepherd god's flock and there's things that go on in churches you know you, you see the, the the you know the the, the top layer <laughs> you know there's things that go on behind the scenes that as elders we have to deal with sometimes on a weekly sometimes a monthly basis they're just heart-wrenching issues but that's what we're called to do. Don't always enjoy it, but that's what God calls us to do. Secondly, elders should give oversight to the flock. And this refers to the general superintendence of the life of the church. General superintendence of the life of the church. The elders must keep their finger on the pulse of the church. What's going on? Making sure that, okay, we're growing spiritually, not just numerically. See, that may involve guarding the flock from error. Okay, that may involve hearing somebody talking about a certain book, and you know that book's not a good book. Or somebody that wants to get aligned with some other ministry, and we we know that, wow, that's not a good ministry. It's it's our role to come alongside and say, hey, here's why we, we don't think that's a good choice. That's part of our role, giving oversight to the flock. Guarding the flock from error, determining church policies, making decisions about the needs and direction of the church, overseeing church finances, coming alongside ministry leaders and giving them guidance and help, working to resolve conflicts between members, and there's a lot of other things that elders do. But it's general oversight. And then thirdly, elders should work together to exercise oversight and shepherd God's flock. Why did you make a point of this? It's simply this. Leadership of any local church should be plural. It's not one man in charge of anything. It's plurality of leadership. Plurality. Every time the term elder is used in the New Testament with regard to a single local church, it is plural. You can do the word study your own. We don't have time to go into it. But it's there. And so it's, it's very important that we understand that the model is a plurality of biblical, spiritually mature men who lead the local church and serve as elders. Watchman Nee wrote this, he said, To place the responsibility in the hands of several brethren rather than in the hands of one individual is God's way of safeguarding his church against the evils that result from the domination of a strong personality. God has purposed that several brothers should, unitedly, bear responsibility in the church, so that even in controlling its affairs, they have to depend upon one another, and submit to one another. So it's very important that we we understand that we're called to honor one another as elders. We're called to trust one another. We're called to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so we have that plurality of elders. Now, that does not mean that when you have a group of men together, that one man will, will lead, kind of emerge as the leader. That's the way it was in the apostles, right? I mean, you had 12 men. Well, who, who kind of came, came above the, the, the surface there as the leader? Peter clearly is described as the leader and the most frequent spokesman. In the early church in Jerusalem, James, the half-brother of our Lord, was clearly the leader. When you had Paul and Barnabas working together, Paul usually took the lead. Um, And yet, all those men came together around the council of Jerusalem, and the leaders worked together, and they arrived at a unified decision about the important matters at hand. And when you talk about making decisions at that level in the local church, the elders decision-making process is unanimous. Okay, we don't have a group of six men who come together and say, what do you think? Okay, well, let's vote. Okay, four to two. Ah, we got it. No, it's got to be unanimous. You mean everybody's got to agree? That's exactly right. That's how serious decision-making in the local church should be taken. It's not a popularity contest. Debate goes on. If if one brother says, you know, I'm not seeing this. I appreciate your input, but I just, in my heart, there's something there that says I, we we shouldn't do this. I remember back when, when uh, I don't know how long I was here, but we had a an offer from the cell tower company. We want to put a cell tower on your church, and we'll pay you. I don't know what the it was between three and five thousand dollars a month. Just a simple tower. Nobody even know it there. Just the shape of a cross or something. You know, hey, generate some income for your church. Well, I remember thinking, man, (laughs) this is great. Look at this, free money, you know? Why wouldn't we do this? And we talked about it, and kind of, after we talked about it, kind of, well, is this the way God provides for his church? I mean, is is this how God provides? Is this biblical? And so we kind of waited and waited, and eventually we just decided, yeah, we're not going to do this. And it kind of always, I always wondered, did we make the right decision? I remember a year or so later, the church down here on the corner it wasn't a Baptist church, it was a congregational church at the time. They said, hey, we need the money. We only got 10 people in our church, and we got this big facility, so we, we need all the money we can get. So, hey, bring it on. So they've started putting towers in there. Wouldn't you know it? The whole neighborhood. I mean, they had billboards in their front, you know, stop the cell towers, you know, they're thinking it causes cancer and all, just bad PR all the way around. And I remember thinking, thank God that we were surrounded, I was surrounded by some men who had a little more insight than I did. See, God uses the, the mul- multiple leaders as they come together. And it's so important that we we get that right. And the, the decision-making process is one through Unanimous consent after prayer and seeking the Lord's wisdom and applying biblical principles. That's why, you know, in Titus, we're going to look at this next week, elders shouldn't be self-willed, they're quick-tempered. Now, none of us are perfect in that way. I've been quick-tempered at times, I'll admit that. I've even been self-willed, for sure. So, you know, but when it comes to making decisions in the local church, if you've got an elder on your, your board that says, you know whether it's my way or the highway, that's not going to fly. This is not going to work. We're not called to be that way. We need to work together in humility and mutual respect. doesn't mean we don't have some heated discussions at times. We do. I mean, think about it. Anybody that's going to take on a task to be an elder, more than likely, they're probably a type A personality anyway, okay? They're kind of driven, so they get together with other type A personalities. What happens? Well, you know, you start talking. <laughs> Things start, start happening, it can heat it up real quick unless you're under the the, the, the care and the, the uh control of the Holy Spirit. Well, third thing here quickly, how are elders chosen? A trust that By this point, you're catching on. There's a little bit of difference between the the world's way of government and the the church's way of government. But just in closing, the idea of the church voting a man into leadership because he's popular or because he's a likable guy or because he's a successful businessman or, or willing to serve his term on the board or whatever it might be, that's not God's way. It's just not. In the New Testament, it says the apostles or their delegates, Timothy, Titus, they appointed elders. That's what it says. They appointed elders in churches, and they they based that on discerning, sometimes even with prayer and fasting, which men met the biblical qualifications to lead in the local church. We're not told whether the churches even had an opportunity to recommend certain men. I'm assuming they did, but we don't know. But that's the, the general understanding here, and that represents good leaders. You know, that doesn't mean that you just have you know, uh, a, a group of men that just, you know, picks whoever they want and, well, you just got to deal with it. No. I mean, in our church, basically, as, as we pray for leadership, things like that, uh, you know, hopefully, there's certain things that, that come to the surface. Certain names come to the surface. And we pray about those men. But rather than voting on who should be church leaders, it's better to say that the church should officially, listen to this, recognize men who meet the qualification for elder and, are, and agree to serve. And not only that, that they're already probably serving. We're going to look at those qualifications next week, by the way. Um, so we, we want to make sure that these are uh, very clear, because they are spelled out for us in Scripture must be a mature man spiritually he must have godly character but it has to be summed up pretty much he's above reproach not perfect but he's above reproach and we're going to talk about that so it's it's very obvious that that such mature godly men are not just going to be sitting around with doing nothing in the church they're going to be Asked to be elders or put, appointed as elders because they're already serving in the local church. They're already functioning as shepherds because that's who they are. See, this isn't a term that you sign up for and if you got the popular vote, you win. No, it's a calling. It's something God puts on your heart and you can't do anything else and you can't rest until you do what God has called you to do. It's a calling from the Lord. It's not just a task. So our process here. As we look for elders, for men, we look, are they already doing the work of the ministry? Are they already shepherding and giving oversight to the flock? Anyone in the church is welcome to recommend a candidate to us. We'll we'll accept that. But we examine those candidates in light of their biblical qualifications. And I think the first qualification, just in closing, is that he has to desire the office See, it's not up to the elders to kind of sit around and get a bunch of names and write them on a, a page and throw lots and figure out who, who we're going to ask to be the elder. No. The Bible says he who desires the office of an elder. So we're, we're not in the job of convincing people to be elders because we need more elders. That's not what we do. If God wants you to be an elder, you're a man in our church, and, and he's going to put it on your heart. You're going to desire it like you desire nothing else. And he'll open the door for that to happen. But we shouldn't have to push men into it. That's mistake number one. And so we have to try to have any prospective elders. You know, when people are interested in this, what we do is, hey, you know what, come to some of the meetings. See what goes on at our elders' meetings. Anybody can come to the elders' meetings, but if you're interested in being an elder, maybe you should see how the dynamics work. I mean, we're not a big church, so we don't have a big board. But you know what, it's it's interesting sometimes how it works. And so then you know you fill out a questionnaire and go through some interview process things like that, and then basically if the elders feel, hey, this is something of, of of the Lord, then we bring your name before the body, have a period of time where we wait, make sure that nobody else sees something that we haven't that we missed, and then basically you're you're appointed as an elder. With the approval of the congregation, in other words, they're not voting on you; they're affirming the decision that the elders made to appoint so-and-so to be an elder. And we come to the body and we say, hey, we really feel we prayed about this. As elders, we feel that this individual meets the qualifications. He'd be a great asset to us. We want him to be part of our elder board. And that's that's how the process works. Next week, we'll look at the qualifications. All right? Okay? All right, let's close a word of prayer, and then we'll... Uh, close out with a hymn father we thank you for your word this morning lord we thank you that government within a local church uh, isn't to be modeled after the world or after our own government even it, it's it's to be modeled after what you have clearly stated in your word and so lord help us to be a church that doesn't compromise in these areas help us to uh, acknowledge the men who are willing to serve in these areas and and to really uh, more than anything lord lift them up in prayer and uh father we pray that you would continue to raise up godly men in our in our uh situation here at Grace Bible Church men who are called to serve you uh, in the office of elder and to serve and oversee the body and and lord we know it's a high calling it's it's something that it's not easy to do but but lord if you put that on their hearts father they they won't rest until they they uh, do what you want them to do and so lord we we pray for all of us here as members and attenders of Grace Bible Church, that we'd be appreciative for, to you, God, for the, the, not only the facilities that you provided for us, but just the history of this church. And, uh, Lord, all, that, all the men and leaders in this church who have gone before us, and, Father, set the foundation for us to uh, meet each week and to teach from your word. And Lord, we don't take that lightly, that, that people um, at some stage in the past God, you put it in their hearts to start a new church called Grace Bible Church right here in Redwood City. And Father, that it was, it was definitely a work that you have ordained over these many years. And so, Lord, we pray that we would continue to submit to you and your son, the leader of this church. We ask, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, Lord, maybe they think, well, this is kind of weird. I've never heard somebody talk about government in a church. But Lord, it, it really comes down to understanding that we're all under your lordship. And, Father, that our salvation is provided to us uh, by grace through faith in the gift that Jesus gave when he died on the cross. And uh, until you know the Savior, um, nothing that you heard this morning is probably going to make any sense. So maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're still on that journey. I pray that God would open your eyes to his truth, that he would create within you a yearning and a desire to know him as Lord and Savior and that you would yield your life to him. Father, that that you would save their soul. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.